Blog Talk Radio. Hey, good afternoon and welcome to the Get Better Wellness Radio Show. Today is July 31st and I'm your host, Erin Chamberlick, the Real Food Revivalist, coming to you live from Chicago, Illinois. And if you're tired of prescription medications and their side effects and endless doctor visits that aren't helping you get to uh, the root of your problem, um, you're in the right place. This is where we talk about real food and how it can benefit the body. So when we stop eating factory food that's loaded with chemicals, artificial ingredients, additives, and preservatives, we open up the door to healing and weight loss. So I do have a great show for you today, and we are going to be talking about gluten from maybe a different angle, if this is a subject that you are familiar with. But let's just start out by asking some um, questions. Does this sound familiar? You're on uh, maybe multiple doctor visits, maybe seeing multiple doctors, having multiple medications, and still you have no answers for the things that are troubling you with your health. Are you suffering from one or more of these symptoms, migraine headaches, digestive problems, sleep issues, blurry vision, thyroid disease, skin rash, ankylosing spondylitis, asthma, pituitary dysfunction, fatigue, arthritis, blood sugar dysregulation, acid reflux, joint pain, back pain, vertigo, headaches, depression, bipolar, Well, hang on there because we're going to get you some answers. And today we are going to help you discover what your doctor maybe didn't tell you um, about your condition and some root causes. Maybe your doctor didn't tell you about gluten and why it may be keeping you sick. Well, today I have a special guest with me, and we are... um, bringing in Dr. Peter Osborne. And Dr. Osborne, are you on the line? I am. Hi. Oh, good. Hi. I um, will just do a short introduction here, which isn't really that short. (laughs) Dr. Osborne is the clinical director for Town Center Wellness in Sugarland, Texas, which is outside of Houston. The website for the practice is towncenterwellness.com. And it is a practice that focuses on chiropractic as well as natural, integrative, holistic care. And that's why they're getting tremendous uh, response for people with chronic degenerative diseases. So functional medicine, it employs all the natural methods um, that actually work. So Dr. Osborne has been in practice since 2001. And I think a primary focus um, has been gluten sensitivities and autoimmune issues. Uh, He received his doctorate from Texas Chiropractic College and has held many um, teaching positions at different uh, medical facilities and the lectures to uh, nutritionally to doctors, um, especially on the topic of gluten sensitivities and intolerance, celiac disease, and drug-induced nutritional deficiencies. So we have the expert with us today. So uh, I just want to say welcome officially. Thanks for having me on, Erin. I appreciate it. Thank you. So we um, 
know your TownCenterWellness.com, but what other um, websites do you um, recommend people visit? Because I didn't list the other ones that I know you're associated with. Uh, primarily, our Gluten Foundation is GlutenFreeSociety.org, and that's a site that we put together back in 2010 to basically disseminate information about gluten and gluten-free lifestyle because so many people go to their doctors and get misdiagnosed or incorrectly diagnosed or get told that gluten is not an important aspect and and, uh, improvement of their health. So we try to have that resource there for people who are trying to self-educate. So is it true that you are focusing a lot of your time on the gluten issue and autoimmune conditions? Well, we focus we focus on health, and as part of that focus, we try to identify core fundamental changes that people need to make in their lifestyle, and those core fundamental changes focus around biochemistry. Biochemistry summarized as nutrition, uh, and so that could be that, you know, food that people eat can either have a negative or a positive effect, depending on whether they're allergic, sensitive, or intolerant to it. But it also is environmental chemicals, environmental pollutants that people can be exposed to, whether or not they they have nutritional deficits, vitamin or mineral deficiencies, whether or not they have been exposed to toxic uh, metal or heavy burdens of toxic metal. So we try to really ascertain all of that information about a person so that we know how to go forth and customize a treatment protocol so that they can restore their health and heal, as opposed to trying to mask their symptoms or medicate their symptoms, either with drugs or botanicals. I even see a lot of natural doctors, they'll, they'll use a lot of you know, herbals and different types of natural medicines without without seeking the origin of the patient's condition. They'll, they'll use those things to treat symptoms. And I'm just not a big believer in symptom reduction through treatment, no matter whether it's natural means or, uh, or medicinal pharmacological means. I'm, I'm more a big believer in let's find out why the problem's there in the first place and let's address and make changes in a person's lifestyle to accommodate their DNA. Okay, so before we dive in um, a little deeper into the gluten issue, um, can you just give us the elevator speech of why should a person stop eating gluten? Because we do hear that, especially the the older the person, the more they've been indoctrinated with the you know grains are healthy for you message. So what you know what would you say in a nutshell if you only had like a minute or two to explain that? I would say in a in a common sense fashion, I would say we have to look at not even really just gluten but grain in general as what it is. It's a seed, and seeds are designed by Mother Nature for survival. That's their whole purpose is to survive, and that includes surviving digestion. So when you throw large massive quantities of a food that's designed to survive into your gut, right? And most people look at, at at eating as a social, fun kind of thing, but eating is a war, right? Every time we eat, we have our gut makes chemicals to destroy whatever food it is, break it down to its smallest common denominator so that we can steal and extract and, and absorb the nutrients from that food. Well, if the food that we're eating is designed to survive and we're eating massive quantities of it, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense um, from a health perspective, to consume it. Whether you're allergic to it and sensitive to it or, or intolerant to it, it just doesn't make sense to use a food that can survive and has been genetically manipulated and hybridized to survive as a staple in the diet, gluten aside. 
Right. So when when somebody comes to you, um, let's say they have one of these chronic ailments that I was listing um, that are so you know unconnected from migraine headaches to digestive problems, blood sugar issues, acid reflux. Can you walk us through how you are starting to, um, you know, be the detective and solve their medical mysteries without just giving them, you know, the latest herbal supplement or pharmaceutical? Absolutely. So with every patient, no matter what the disease, we have to start with baseline fundamentals, right? What are those? Um, I use a philosophy called the Triangle of Health. I don't know if you're familiar with that or not. I, I put together a video about it a while back. I can send you a link to it if you're interested, but I'll talk about it here. This triangle, at the core of it, is your DNA. And no matter who you are, your DNA, you inherit it. It, it can't be changed. In essence, it is hardwired in. It is what you have, right? And genetically speaking, some people are talented at certain things and and not talented at other things, right? Some people run fast, some people jump high, some people digest better, some people don't digest well, right? So we all have our own gifts and uniquenesses based on our DNA. Our DNA won't change, but based on the way we treat it. So if we treat our DNA poorly, then it will behave in a poor manner. So although it won't change at its core, certain genes are going to be flipped off and on that are going to influence our health. Think of the, think of DNA kind of as a, a series of 30,000 different light switches, right? And light switches can be turned off or on. And sometimes when you turn a light switch on, if you need light, that's a good thing, right? If you're trying to see, you turn a light switch on, you have light, great, now you can see. But if you're trying to sleep and you're flipping lights on, it's going to be a lot harder to go to sleep, right? So the key here is to influence our genes, turn on the right genes at the right time, and turn off certain genes when they're supposed to be off. And the way we influence our genes' behavior is through environmental choice, right? So this environmental choices are broken down into three categories. There's chemistry, there's physical, and then there's mental or emotional. And so chemistry is summarized as anything good or bad that comes into our bodies that we can't see working. So like food breaks down into chemicals, right? Hydrogen, carbon, oxygen, etc., vitamins and minerals. You don't actually see those things working, but they are there and they are working and they're measurable. And so we like to look at food and food response first because food is the ultimate chemical. It's the ultimate drug. Uh, people don't look at it that way, but it is. Food is a drug. And so if we can discern what a person is or is not reactive to, then we can remove it from their diet if they're reacting to it. And we can calm down their immune system and get and get the inflammation to die down and get their condition to improve. So we look at food. We look at chemicals in the environment, whether they're reacting to certain types of pollutants or certain types of plastics like the butyl phthalate. There are a number of different chemicals that people have allergic reactions to, and they're not even aware because many of these allergic reactions don't manifest as, as like an acute anaphylactic shock. You know, like when a kid with a peanut allergy, their lips swell and their throat constricts. Most allergies don't work that way. Most allergies work by producing chronic low-grade inflammation. And so we run tests to measure these reactions so that we can tell a person, you need to avoid these chemicals, you need to avoid these foods, okay? Then we also look at vitamin and mineral deficiencies because if a person doesn't have adequate quantities of zinc or vitamin C or B12, etc., <clears throat> we're going to have a problem getting them better. And I think of vitamins and minerals like this. If you're building a house, 
and all the contractors show up and they're ready to go to work, but the two-by-fours weren't delivered to build the frame, think of the two-by-fours as vitamins and minerals. You have to have vitamins and minerals um, for your body to be able to function and work. That's why they call them essential nutrients, because they're essential. We have to get them from our diets or through supplementation. So we measure those to see what a person's deficient in so that we can either apply supplementation or make diet changes to incorporate certain nutrients in higher quantities. Are you with me so far? Does that make sense? Yep, yep. I um, I know people will be asking what can they ask for from their doctor. Let's assume it's a person who will find these tests for them. Um, how do you look for reactive foods and reactive chemicals in the environment? Is there um, a specific lab or specific test they should ask for? There is. Um, a lot of doctors will run a skin prick test to check for allergies. Mm-hmm. And you wouldn't want to use an allergy skin prick test. It's not very accurate. You know, seeing an inflammatory response in the skin when you prick it is not always abnormal. So that's not mm-hmm. the end-all, be-all test for looking at allergies. So a lot of doctors want to use that skin prick test. I don't really recommend it. You can measure allergies many different ways. Um, the human body makes five different kinds of antibodies. I don't know if you've heard of these. This IgE, IgA, IgG, IgM, IgD. These are all different types of antibodies that we produce against environmental uh, exposures if our body doesn't like them. We will also produce what are called um, an immune complex response, which is a different type of chemical reaction. It's not measurable the same way that antibodies are measurable. And so the the unfortunate part about this, when you're going to your doctor and they're measuring for food allergies, most doctors are going to measure something called IgG, immunoglobulin G. And immunoglobulin G is just one of six different known ways that your immune system will react to something. So if you have an IgG test, it's not always accurate because it's only one way the immune system can respond. And if your immune system is responding in a different way, then it does, it, you can get a false negative on the test result. Right. The testing that I recommend is actually a lab in Virginia called Elisac Biotechnologies, and they measure for all six known ways the immune system can respond. And they're the only lab in the world that does it, and that's why I use them, because it's more comprehensive in it, and it... Um, helps us to rule out a lot of false negatives that might occur. So if you did get a positive, I'm sorry, if you did get a positive on the IgG, then that's pretty indicative. But if you have a negative, you don't know if it's a false negative, so you really don't have an answer. Exactly. So why would I invest six or $800 or however much an IgG test costs, because some of them are pretty costly, when I can invest similar a quantity of money to get a more comprehensive picture. Now, is the ELISA Act only looking at food, or is it also bringing in the toxins? It looks at foods. It looks at foods, chemicals, environmental molds and fungus. It looks at heavy metals. It looks at certain medications. You know, I can, you know, if I have a patient on certain drugs or whatnot, I can, I can customize what I need to see in in a patient. Like I'm not going to test every drug for every okay. patient because if they're not taking that drug, why would I? Why would I do that, right? So, you know, if mm-hmm. I have a patient taking a particular medication, then I can now go in and I can test them see if they're allergic to their medication. And sometimes mm-hmm. medications have fillers like cornstarch or uh, FDNC mm-hmm. dye. 
So I can also test for those things and determine whether or not they're reacting to their medication possibly in that way. This is actually where a lot of medication side effects come from. Hmm. Some people are allergic to the medicine, but some people are allergic to the inert fillers within the medication, so they're having a negative side effect. Yeah, and um, so there's so many things that are going through my head, but I'm trying to do this in a logical way. (laughs) So, okay, so you were talking and telling us, you know, how you start with a new patient, you'll do this testing. Do you put them right away on a certain eating plan while you're waiting for the testing? It depends. Um, I'm not a big fan of generalizing diets. You know, and a lot of people are surprised because I'm so well-known for gluten sensitivity. But I don't like to generalize about people's diets simply because there are times where, you know, a lot of people that that go gluten-free end up going paleo because it just works better for them being off of all grains. But there are times when the paleo diet can cause liver damage. And uh, there are times where it's going to cause problems. There are times. So I I like to really get back information on what a person should do versus just kind of trying to guess my way through what I think they might need to do. I find that when you take the guesswork out, one, you increase the compliance. The patient's more willing to do a diet change when they see it in black and white. And two, the diet change that they are making is more likely to help them if you've taken out all the guesswork and you're not just having them try to go gluten-free or, you know, try to take dairy or sugar out. I mean, obviously there are healthy things that a person can do, and it's healthy for all people. Like, we know that soda is not good for us, and we know that artificial sweeteners aren't the best thing in the world, and we know that eating genetically modified food isn't healthy. So, you know, we will we will start encouraging those types of changes right away. But as far as mm-hmm. omitting certain things, I mean, I've had, I've had patients that were terminal over blueberries, so, you know, I mean, it, it, it really does vary that much from one individual to the next. Hmm. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about um, gluten. So on the ELISA-ACT test, you would see that the person has a problem with gluten. Would you do genetic testing on them too? No, I don't use ELISA-ACT so much for gluten. I use DNA testing for gluten. There's a difference between an allergy and a sensitivity. And um, this is another common mistake is when doctors measure for celiac, they measure for gluten sensitivity. They're really not measuring for gluten sensitivity at all. They're measuring for celiac disease, which gluten sensitivity and celiac disease are not the same thing. We could could say this. Everyone who has celiac disease is gluten sensitive, but not everybody with gluten sensitivity develops celiac disease. So if I look at tests that are measuring for celiac disease, I'm going to miss a huge quantity of people who actually are non-celiac gluten sensitive. Does that make sense? Yes. So this is why I don't do I don't do antibody testing for gluten because first of all, gluten is a generic term. There's thousands of different gluten proteins. Um, Wheat alone has more than I think it's like three or four hundred different forms of gluten. And so when we're measuring gluten, when doctors traditionally measure, they measure something called an anti-gluidin antibody, which is one type of gluten found in wheat, barley, and rye. And they typically only measure IgG response. So remember I told you before, there's six known ways the immune system can respond, and IgG is only one of them. Mm -hmm. So now think about that. I measure only IgG, which is only one of six ways the immune system can respond, to gliadin, which is only one of thousands of different types of glutens. How accurate am I really going to be? at isolating a true gluten sensitivity. 
The mm. answer is not very accurate at all. So what we really try to look for, we look at the DNA because we want to see, genetically speaking, people who are gluten sensitive have a DNA pattern, okay, that when they're exposed to gluten activates an inflammatory cascade. So it causes or turns on the genes, like we were talking about genes being like light switches. Gluten exposure for people with gluten genes activates inflammation. Okay, it turns that gene on to produce inflammation. And so then they're chronically producing inflammation for years and years and years. And sometimes it can take 20 or 30 years for a disease to truly develop in an individual. And that's why the average person with gluten sensitivity won't get a diagnosis till they're in their mid-30s to 40s. And then they're maybe only diagnosing the ones who are pretty far gone with their celiac disease. Um, so which comes First, the celiac disease, um, is it a genetic predisposition for gluten sensitivity or is it a genetic predisposition for a disease? <laughs> no, so gluten sensitivity is not a disease. It's a, pre it's a genetic predisposition. People who ignore their genes, right, don't follow what their genes want them to do, get sick. Some people get sick acutely. Some people take years for the illness to develop. Think about it like this. If you go underwater and try to breathe, what's going to happen? A, you're going to grow gills. B, you're going to choke and drown. Right? The answer is obvious, right? You're not going to grow gills. Mm -hmm. And that's that's an example, an obvious example, of putting your genes in an environment that's impossible for, your, for you to survive. Well, people with gluten-sensitive genes, if they continue and persistently eat gluten, they're doing the same thing, only they're not threatening their life today, right now. Now, some people have acute reactions to gluten where when they get exposure to it, it makes them violently ill. And that's typically that's not gluten sensitivity that they're experiencing. What they're, what they're experiencing is anaphylactic wheat allergy reaction, which is a different entity. But oftentimes the two get confused. Okay, so then because you said it can take 20 to 30 years before disease manifests, you don't want to wait 20 or 30 years to find out that you don't, um, you know, that your genes are saying you don't tolerate wheat. So basically everybody should not be eating anything that has gluten, right? Because you don't know unless you're going to just randomly DNA test everybody. Well, that that's true. And, and so the way I like to look at it is it, there's no necessity for grain in the human diet. I know that the Food Guide Pyramid says that that's not true. But there is absolutely no necessity for grain as a staple in the human diet. Humans can survive without grain. It doesn't cause vitamin and mineral deficiencies. I know a lot of nutritionists and doctors will tell you it's dangerous to not eat grain. You need whole grain. You don't. There's no human need. So you could tell somebody to go on a gluten-free diet, and, it, and at the very minimum, it's not going to hurt them. And it could very well help them. And, well, I guess I'm, that's the side I'm on is that I don't think we should eat grains because so many people do have issues with them. And the only way you're going to know is if you do genetic testing or if you wait until you get sick. So, you know, since it provides right. no, um, you know, nutritional benefit that we can't get from other types of foods and it only, you know, can cause harm then there's really not a strong argument of why we should eat 
grains. <laughs> but the the oh, argument. I, I, comes, I don't disagree with that. Yeah. So then people, um, you know, would like to, uh, and big food would like to identify gluten grains as wheat, barley, rye, and sometimes oats. And this is where you look at it differently. So can you talk us through that? And and is there science that backs up, um, you know, the other grains being a problem? Absolutely. There's there's lots of science that back it up. Uh, the most science is on corn. We've known since 1972 that corn can cause villus atrophy. Now, when you think think about that, the way that, that celiac disease is diagnosed is by identifying villus atrophy on a scope, right? We do a biopsy, and uh, we look for the, the kind of the hallmark traditional villi flattening. And when we see that, we say, okay, that's celiac disease, and celiac disease means that you react to wheat, barley, rye, and sometimes oats, depending on who you talk to. However, corn can cause villus atrophy. Soy can cause villus atrophy. Dairy can cause villus atrophy. These have all been studied. We've got research on all three. So in my in my opinion, I think that uh the diagnostic recognition of how we how we go about diagnosing needs to change. It's it's very wrong. It's it's commonly accepted, but it isn't correct. Um, because identification of, of villus atrophy, you know, you have a large percentage of people who go gluten-free, wheat, barley, and rye-free, who don't respond. Some studies show as high as 92% of people going on a traditional gluten-free diet, you know, wheat, barley, rye-free diet, don't get better. That's a huge percentage. And there are studies that show, there was just a recent study published when you took patients who were non-responsive that had celiac disease, when you took them off of off of the Gluten-free foods, the packaged foods, you know, the things with the corn and the rice and the other grains, most of them got better. Now, so, let me ask you um, right here is, um, you know, when I, I recommend people get all the grains out because I have listened to you, and, um, you know, a, a person with celiac, um, you know, is and they're eating high corn and rice, diet and then they go grain free um, and complain that they feel slightly worse going grain free after two weeks um, what what would be causing that a metabolic shift in the way their body is 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 generating energy it's very common that's one of the issues that we see when they go grain free is they is they are so used to steady state large quantities of carbohydrate that their body will will um, get tired it's used to having steady-state carbs coming in, and so it, that's the metabolism that it's accustomed to. When you change that, you're going to get initial fatigue. You might get a, a, them feeling worse initially. And so that's one element of it. Another element of it is um, there are proteins and glutens that are addictive and that can cause, uh, just like getting off of a drug, just like trying to quit alcohol, that will cause withdrawals. So a person might go into hyper-irritability, uh, they might have ex- extra gastrointestinal symptoms because they're going through a withdrawal phase. And so you would just tell them actually quite keep, uh, keep walking the path. And I think you know the the changing the fuel, you know, from a high carb fuel to getting that out and switching your body to burning fat, that takes several weeks. So you shouldn't really judge it too soon because 
I guess that's what I should be, you know, doing is uh, preparing people that if you're switching your fuel, be prepared that, um, you know, you may not feel good or better right away. It can take several weeks for your body to adjust. Yeah, it it can. So I wouldn't, yeah, I would, I would, it's a good idea to always prepare them for the potential side effect that they might, they might have because it, you know, feeling worse when a person goes gluten-free can be a deterrent for that individual. Mm, you want to go gluten-free. Right. And what about the addictive nature that you um, alluded to? What's going on there? So there are proteins that mimic morphine. Uh, that are they're, they're called gluteomorphins, and they're a class of proteins that they basically attach to the same receptors that morphine uses in the brain to create great feelings of calmness and, and uh, satisfaction and happiness. And they work to help reduce pain response. And so when a person gets off of these things, uh, they're losing that drug-like effect. And so they can get depressed or they can have low energy or they can have more pain. And then the, that's called gluteomorphins. And then mm-hmm. the same with um, dairy. And are yeah, there other foods? Compound in dairy. Well, the two well most studied are gluteomorphin and caseomorphin, which um, you know we we've studied in addiction medicine. I'm sure there are other foods. Uh, to say that there aren't other foods that could do it, I think would be very short-sighted. It's kind of like saying. You know, wheat is the only thing that can cause villus atrophy. It's it's a short-sighted statement. I, I think we have to assume that there are other proteins that might be similar that could also create a similar type of reaction. Mm-hmm. There's some labs now. There's a, there's a lab that is doing what's called cross-reactivity testing where they're measuring uh, people's immune response to foods that might have similar shapes or structures to the protein, to the gluten proteins. And, um, you know, that... Um, that's an example of of how we, you know, when we have a protein that has a similar structure, even though they're not identical, you can have a similar reaction. The body can react to them in similar ways. Can we talk about um, Hashimoto's hypothyroid condition? Um, Because so many people are experiencing that, and they're only getting a drug, and they're getting Synthroid or something if they go to the doctor. So if um, a person comes to you with um, hypothyroidism, what are you going to do? What are you going to look at, and and how do you treat that? Well, a thyroid condition, you know, first you have to delineate whether or not it's, it's autoimmune or whether it's low thyroid for other reasons. A person can have an autoimmune response where they're actually attacking their own thyroid or their own thyroid hormone. Then a person can also have low thyroid because they don't eat enough protein or because they're deficient in iodine or because they have a selenium deficiency. So there are vitamins and mineral deficiencies that can cause low thyroid levels. And then there are immune system responses that can attack the thyroid and create low thyroid levels as a result. So the first thing you have to do is rule out one from the other. And so that's why we do a comprehensive nutritional evaluation first. We we do blood work to identify and analyze whether or not those deficiencies exist, which could contribute to the inability for the body to make thyroid hormone. Nobody is ever deficient in thyroid hormone because they don't have enough synthroid. I think we could all intelligently, you know, make right. that assumption and assume that. Right. 
But there mm-hmm. are a number of reasons why thyroid might be low. And again, it just the nature of identifying is, is doing due diligence and, and testing, running an t- appropriate test to try to discern what those are. And so the most common, in my experience, the most common causes of, of uh, autoimmune thyroid disease are food reactions, gluten being one of the main. And then when we have a non-autoimmune-based thyroid disease, the most common that I see are magnesium, vitamin B12, and selenium deficiency. And some of the people listening may run out to the uh, the supplement store and buy, you know, magnesium, selenium, B12. Don't do that. I mean, you can actually make things worse if that's not the issue. And vitamins and minerals are relatively safe to take. But you, what you can do if you take what you don't necessarily need, you can create a biochemical imbalance over the long run that makes things worse. And I see this happen very frequently in patients. It doesn't threaten their life, but it just makes their condition worse or makes it more confusing. Mm-hmm. I don't like to give supplementation to patients without having valid reasons as to why to do it. And um, so instead of just saying, here, take a bunch of these pills, hopefully we'll hit something, hopefully we'll be right on one area, I really, I really want to know specifically what it is that, that they need so that when we are spending money on supplements or changing diet to a great degree, Again, we, we have a blueprint versus a guess. So what tests are you um, running to pinpoint if it is autoimmune hypothyroid? Well, I'm going to look at thyroid antibodies as part of it. I'm going to look for something called TPO, thyroid peroxidase antibodies, and another called antithyroglobulin antibodies, and there's a handful of other antibody tests that can be done to look for other forms of autoimmune thyroid disease. I'm going to run, uh, I'm going to measure iodine levels. I'm going to measure vitamin and mineral deficiency. I'm going to measure standard thyroid panel, TSH, T3, T4, uh, free T4. I'm going to look at something called reverse T3. So we're going to, we're going to look at a battery of things that all create or are affected or can affect thyroid function. And then we're going to come up with an approach that that will resolve the issue, whatever that issue may be. It's different for different people. I see people with mm-hmm. the same kind of thyroid disease for different reasons. You know, think about like fatigue. How many different causes of fatigue are there? Mm-hmm. So that being mm-hmm. said, you're right. There's unlimited. So I mean, we could say the same thing about thyroid disease. It's really, it's just a matter of figuring out what the cause is. Um, so we can address the cause instead of treating the symptoms. Mm-hmm. So one thing we have to talk about is um, just the prevalence of autoimmune diseases affecting so many people that if they were grouped together, um, they are, you know, the leading cause of death and disability. And Hashimoto's is just one of the many. So you know, how many autoimmune diseases are there and why, like, every time we turn around, oh, there's a new disease you never heard of and it's usually an autoimmune condition. Um, So I want you to talk about the prevalence and then where did this all start? Why is everybody coming down with autoimmune diseases and multiple autoimmune diseases? Well, the average person with gluten sensitivity will develop seven autoimmune diseases in their lifetime. 
the problem with autoimmunity is that we is that we we separate the diseases. Unlike when we're talking about cancer and heart disease, we 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 clump all the different types of cancer and heart disease together. We don't do that with autoimmune disease. If we did autoimmune, like you said, autoimmune disease would be the number one cause of death in the United States. It'd be the most prevalent disease. And we've seen a rapid increase in the in the um, incidence of autoimmune disease in the last 30 years. Uh, I don't think anybody's really studied this definitively. I don't, I don't think there's a study that could be done that's definitive. But in my own humble opinion, I think that a big reason why we see more and more of it is because we've tampered more and more with, with the food supply and we've added more and more chemicals to the environment. And many of these, we've we've identified and isolated them as being autoimmune-inducing. I think we're too clean as a populace. I think we take too many showers. I think we use too much soap and too much antibacterial product because, you know, having low levels of good bacteria can also contribute to autoimmune disease. I think we don't get enough sunlight, and when we do, we take showers and we wash the vitamin D oils off of our skin too quickly so we don't get the benefit of the sunlight we were exposed to. Uh, and I think overall our diets are just very malnourished. I think people gravitate toward convenience instead of toward health, and it's become socially acceptable to eat wrong as opposed to eating right. People who want to eat right are generally ostracized and called, called health nuts in our society. Uh, right. It's a very it's a very strange phenomenon. But um, you know, you, all you have to do is look around. Statistically speaking, the people that you see around you are going to develop cancer, heart disease, or autoimmune disease. You know, it's a it's a mathematical certainty unless they make changes to their lifestyle. So I would rather be a silent uh, minority, uh, or I rather a, a very loud minority being called crazy, and but being right, than being part of the the majority who continue to do the same thing over and over again and expect a different result, um, which is you know following the to me following the the mainstream medical model, which by the way is the only business in the United States. It's the only business model that has failed to achieve success in its customers that continues to grow. No other business model has that luxury, so to speak. Every other business grows because they prove to their customer that there's a value, not in medicine. You can look at the history of treating heart disease. Just look at all the uh, the treatments that have been developed over the last many years for heart disease and cancer and some of the major diseases. In spite of those treatments, the numbers of disease continues to rise and the number of deaths from those diseases continues to rise. That's I, that so just tells me that we're very not, simply if, yeah, if, if, we're, if, we're, if we're looking we're not at winning just the outcomes. The war on cancer. <laughs> Sorry, I'm talking no, about there's, you. It's this well, delay I mean, the delay in the line that... Yeah. There's no war on cancer. The war needs to be on intelligence and intelligent thought. Uh, the war needs to be on fundamental principles and how humans are supposed to be healthy. There's not a war on cancer. I mean, we make a war on cancer, uh, but the war on cancer is a myth. If we if we had a war to educate children in school and schools and parents about adequate and proper nutrition, that's really where the battle needs to be fought. The battle needs to be fought on the home front. It needs to be fought um, in families where, you know, the emphasis is on both parents working to make an income instead of one parent being able to stay home and educate children properly about the, the nourishment and the care of the family and how important food is and how important homemaking actually is. I think it's a, it's a critical job that in our society has just been really lambasted and, and demeaned. Um, call me old-fashioned. I don't say that to offend anybody, but it's just the reality. If we look at, I was once asked the question, what's the one thing 
that has impacted nutrition the most in the United States, I would say equal rights. And not that I'm not an advocate of equal rights. I, I am. I think a woman should be paid fairly. I think a woman should have all the opportunities afforded a man. But I also think that um, that the job of homemaker and that the job of somebody nourishing the house, nourishing the household, right? We could go back to Paleolithic society and you had hunters and gatherers. And the hunters would go off and they would find food and bring it home. And the gatherers would stay near and they would gather things up and nourish and they would be the heart of the house, so to speak. And I think we're missing that in today's society. And kids get taught about nutrition not from their mothers so much as they do. And, I, and I'm not generalizing about the entire populace here. I'm just saying as a, as a general rule, most right. people get educated about nutrition by the schoolhouse. And the schoolhouse preaches the food guide pyramid. And the food guide mm-hmm. pyramid was created by politicians who were being paid by lobbyists on the Grain Commission and the Dairy Commission so that they would offer up more servings of these foods. So, I mean, you know, the proverbial fox is in the hen house, so to speak. Exactly. And, you know, so when we just look at the health of our nation and we see it's only been in the last 50-plus years that, you know, we've seen this disease state ramping up, you kind of go, what's changed? Because we've been walking this earth for, you know, thousands plus years, so something has changed. Um, with the you know increase in autoimmune diseases, and we're tracking back to the root cause, um, and it, it, can you talk about the gut issue, the autoimmune gut and leaky gut and the connection there of developing sensitivities to food? Yeah, so, I mean, there's so many assaults on our gut today from from being gluten sensitive is is a potential assault. We know gluten can induce leaky gut. Uh, And some studies, some research studies show, no matter whether you're gluten sensitive or not, that mass quantities of gluten cause leaky gut anyway. And it's a different mechanism behind the sensitivity mechanism. Um, But then we also know that the assault on the gut comes from many other elements as well. From genetically modified foods, we know cause changes in gastric architecture. So we see, we see this especially in young kids when the when the pediatricians try to put them on Nexium or Prilosec because they have acid reflux because they're drinking a genetically modified soy or corn-based formula. So instead of changing their diet, they're trying to put them on acid-reducing or acid-blocking medications, which predisposes them to maldigestion and infection. So then they end up with ear tubes, and, and the list goes on and on and on. But so there are drugs like antacid medications that will contribute to leaky gut, antibiotics. Not properly prescribed, but overly prescribed antibiotics will contribute to the erosion of healthy bacteria within the gut and lead to contribute to the breakdown of the gut barrier. Then we also have pain medications. Pain medications erode the mucosal layer in our guts and uh, predispose it to developing intestinal permeability. And then you add, and these are the top, by the way, those are the top three drugs that are prescribed in the United States. And now you add antidepressants to the list, which is also in that top five list, of medications prescribed, and, and antidepressants cause gastric motility issues. So they're going to affect the way food travels through the gut, so it changes transit time, and it causes things like IBS. So we have all these drug-like assaults on the gut under the guise that we're treating disease, which we're not really treating disease when we give medicine. We're, we're masking symptoms. And so these these drugs will assault the gut and contribute to permeability, Gluten 
will contribute to permeability. So you give enough of these assaults into an individual, and they're going to start developing that permeable barrier. And so food proteins will start leaking into the bloodstream. And when food proteins start leaking into the bloodstream, some of these food proteins look like our organs, right? So as in the case of, of thyroid disease, you can actually have the development of autoimmune thyroid disease as a result of a process called molecular mimicry, which is when you develop leaky gut and the food protein leaking into your bloodstream is stimulating an immune reaction. And over a long enough period of time, that immune reaction becomes kind of automatic, right? And if the proteins that are leaking through also look like the thyroid, then now we start attacking our own thyroid. And this can happen in any tissue in the body. It's been shown to happen and liver tissue and skin tissue and gut tissue and brain tissue and neurological tissue and thyroid tissue and kidneys and the lungs. It's been shown to happen in every tissue in the body. So the you know, the the issue behind leaky gut is that, you know, basically it that permeability leads to that process of molecular mimicry. And that's why your average person with gluten issues will develop seven different autoimmune diseases. It doesn't stop at one. It just keeps coming until you make changes in your environment, make changes in your diet to accommodate your body's needs. And that's really sad for a lot of people who are all of a sudden their eyes are opening up that, gee, maybe my liver issue is a leaky gut issue, which started from, you know, <laughs> just some environmental thing, doing what you, you know, think you're eating healthy foods according to the food pyramid. So um, what can a person do who has uh, a leaky gut issue or their, you know, their gut issue is um, related to increased permeability so they are leaking food proteins? Um, what what can they do to fix that? Besides, you know, you're going to get the gluten out and, the you know, find out what foods are the problem, but to just stop further development so you don't have the, you know, fifth, sixth, and seventh autoimmune disease and food sensitivities, you know, compounding. You have to repair the barriers. And the five main barriers in the gut, um, the gastro-associated lymphoid tissue, which is a large conglomeration of lymphatic tissue behind the gut wall, that's one of the barriers. The tight junctions between the cells of the gut is another barrier. The mucus that's produced in the gut is a barrier. And inside that mucus, we make antibodies that fight pathogens that come through our food. Um, we also have good bacteria. That's a barrier. And then we have stomach acid. Stomach acid is a very critical barrier. So there are other barriers, but those are probably, if we could summarize the five main ones, those are the five main ones. You have to reestablish and restore the normal balance for those barriers. And the way I go about doing that is I will actually do uh, GI testing, where I'm going to measure the bacteria that live in a person. I'm going to measure their ability to secrete uh, to secrete antibodies to protect themselves. I'm going to measure their ability to digest and absorb their food. I'm going to measure their pH. I'm going to measure for infection and make sure that infection is not already playing a role in the breakdown of their gut. Oftentimes, when you eat the wrong food over a long enough period of time, and your immune system is so busy fighting food that infections thrive in the gut and contribute to leaky gut. I've seen everything from bacterial to fungal to parasitic infections. So we try to rule those out and treat them if, they're, if, if there's a need to treat them. So, I mean, th those are the main parameters to really start restoring. Now, some, 
some nutritionists, some doctors are going to start giving things like deglycerinized licorice, uh, which will produce a coating, which will help kind of soothe pain. But again, it goes back to treating symptoms versus curing or versus finding origin of the problem. I don't really believe, I mean, I believe in palliatively giving something to somebody that might help them improve the quality of life under the auspice that we need to make other changes and that we need to investigate other things. But I don't believe in giving something somebody something palliatively unless we're investigating the deeper origin of their problem. Some people give glutamine because glutamine is a fuel for gut cells. Some people give vitamin A because it helps regenerate epithelial cells in the gut. It just it varies. So I, I, I like to do gut function testing and I like to do vitamin and mineral testing because, again, vitamins and minerals, you know, we go back to the origin they are the building blocks to help us repair and heal the body. And what do you think about the GAPS protocol or bone broth and, you know, the specific eating style that's recommended there? I I, I think it's a great, GAPS is a great generalization. Um, No book ever written, okay, so to every doctor who's ever written a good book, credit to them. They're right in some form or fashion about a lot of things that they're writing about, but they're writing in generalizations. And when it comes to treating a patient, you can't treat in generalizations because the GAPS diet might work fantastically well for somebody with IBS or autoimmune disease, and then you use the same diet on another person, and it might not work at all. Does that make sense? So my mm-hmm. point is is that you have to be a lot more specific with a person. You can't just say, we're gonna we're gonna just make everybody do the gaps and everybody do paleo or everybody do gluten free or everybody do Atkins. It doesn't work that way. If it worked that way, then everybody who did those diets would always get better 100% of the time. You really have to be specific to the individual need of the person. There's a really good book. I encourage the readers to to go check out. It's called Biochemical Individuality. And it was written over 50 years ago by a biochemist who was 100 years ahead of his time. Uh, And this Mm -hmm. is the concept that needs to be practiced in medicine, in my opinion, today, is that everybody is unique. And so one diet doesn't fit all. One size does not fit all in medicine or in healthcare, And we have to understand that. And so what we have to look for is we have to look for the individual uniquenesses and target treatment plans and target diet protocols based on those things. Okay, um, and I, I agree with that. I uh, have to check that book out, but everybody is unique, and you know, especially the gluten-free diet. I think that's the biggest um, band-aid that's you know being trumpeted out there now, and so many people are running to the um, processed gluten-free foods, and they're still eating a junk diet. It just you know happens to not have wheat, barley, or rye in it. And sometimes they do get better and feel better and lose weight, but you probably would say maybe that's a short-term thing, right? Almost, it's always almost a short-term thing. It's um, I've actually coined it as gluten-free whiplash, and that is, you know, when we initially go gluten-free, we typically don't know about all the processed garbage, and this is less true today than it was five or ten years ago because the industry is has made everything conveniently available. You know, most grocery stores today have a gluten-free aisle. But, um, you know, you have a person going gluten-free. Initially, they don't eat a bunch of grains, and they start feeling better, and then they find out about the 
you know, genetically manipulated what they're calling gluten-free breads, even though I don't agree with that definition. Gluten is in all grains, not just wheat, barley, and rye. Uh, so the rice breads and the corn breads and the other types of, of uh, grain, sorghum, etc., they do have forms of gluten, and they do cause damage to people. And they have been proven in research studies to cause damage to people. But it's not common knowledge, and it's there's no legal law for what gluten is in the United States, and there's no labeling law. So people run to that, and once they start gravitating that way, they may feel better initially, but they start feeling worse as the more the more of those types of products they continue to eat. Now, I wanted to talk about the um, gluten-brain connection. And, you know, what are you seeing with your patients on the autism spectrum, with schizophrenia, depression? Um, how strong is that connection to gluten? It's it's extremely strong. Um, it's not there 100% of cases. I mean, there are cases of autism that... And parents will take their child gluten-free, and and the child won't get better. And, and there are cases where it does happen. I think just like what I said earlier about fatigue, how many causes are there? I think there's more than one cause for autism, certainly. Um, but gluten-free, because gluten as a as a protein has a structure that tends to be neurodegradative, and so it can damage nerve tissue. And so if we have an existing nerve nerve disease or brain-based disease. We know it can it can exacerbate that, um, but in addition, it can also cause. I've seen cases of schizophrenia go into full remission with grain-free diets. I had a patient one time walk in here completely catatonic, and, and we treated him for 18 months, changed his diet, and today he's, you know, works a full-time job. He's he's very uh, successful in terms of where he was supposed to be. He was supposed to be dead by now. Uh, they didn't give him long to live. They said he was going to commit suicide or. or um, mm-hmm. You know, so I mean, does it? Is there an effect? Definitely, there's an effect. People that say there's no correlation are speaking out of ignorance, or mm-hmm. or blind stupidity, one or the other, because um, there's definitely a correlation. I mean, bread madness is is actually one of the oldest known names for gluten sensitivity, and it refers to schizophrenia, and that's mm-hmm. not a new term. That's a very old term. So we have and we have all these correlations between how bread can or grain can affect the brain. Uh, as a matter of fact, I, I can't remember. Uh, there's a doctor getting ready to come out with a book called Grain Brain, and he's summarizing all the neurological research uh, on how grain impacts neurological tissue and brain function. So, um, you know, stay tuned for that book. I think it's due to come out any day now. But, uh, there's, yeah, there's right. definitely a correlation. I, I see patients with Asperger's and autism and ADD and ADHD and bipolar disease and depression and schizophrenia all get better, and it's not always just gluten. It's usually a, it's usually a conglomeration of factors, right? Gluten is not. I don't want to. I don't want people to come across after this interview thinking that gluten is this magic bullet that's going to fix all their problems. Mm-hmm. I don't. I don't believe that to be true. Usually, it's multifactorial. There's many things that are that are wrong. There's many things that they're doing wrong, and gluten is one very very strong thing that they're doing wrong. But there may also be other components to their illness as well. Some people have genetic uh, variations. Another thing that I like to test for in my patients is, I don't know if you've if you've come across the term genetic SNP, SNP, it stands for genetic single nucleotide polymorphism. And what a genetic SNP is, is it's a variation in a gene. You know, we all have two arms, two eyes, two legs, but we don't all have the same length of arms or width or color 
uh, right? There's variation among the theme, right? And there are variation mm-hmm. among the theme of our genes as well. Those different variations will create environments that are predisposed to developing neurological problems or cardiovascular problems or cancer-based problems. And so we try to measure some of these genetic SNPs to determine how a person is capable of metabolizing chemicals or capable of producing neurotransmitters that are what are responsible for enacting adequate thought and function of neurological tissue. So we kind of try to look at Again, where are these origins at? What what is it that this person is being affected by, and why? And I think um, people are starting to realize that maybe their um, doctor that they've been visiting has no idea about these issues because a lot of times um, in medical school our doctors aren't being taught and so we need to seek out, um, you know, medical professionals who do understand how to employ natural methods of treatment and how to have an integrative, you know, approach because food matters, nutrition matters, and there are usually answers outside of the pillbox, and we need to find somebody who can guide us through that. So having said that, how um, can a person interact with you? I know they can come to your clinic in Sugarland, Texas, but what if they're here in Illinois where I am? Um, do you do that long-distance approach, or how can we find a doctor who knows what you know? Good question. Um, I do a lot of phone consulting. I actually have a doctor training program um, I teach doctors all over the country, all over the world. And so we take and we mentor doctors and we get them moving in the right direction and kind of teach them the philosophy and the core clinical fundamentals that they need to understand and know. And then we, um, we I, it's not really a certification per se. I don't know. It's not a formal certification, but when people ask for referrals and there's doctors in the area that I've trained, I, I generally tend to send to those particular doctors or make those recommendations. Mhm. Okay, so if a person wanted to set up a there's phone a, consult with yeah, you, there's they a could website, go to your website. That, that, yeah, there's another website that um, I have my staff putting together. It's um, myfunctionalmedicinedoctor.org, O-R-G. And um, it's not really up to date right now. It's um, again, it's something that that is kind of in the works, so to speak, and and that's where you ask me where can we find doctors in our area. We're going to be listing a lot of doctors that that, uh, that have gone through our training at that site once it's complete. It's kind of beta mode right now. Okay. Well, I you know appreciate your time. I've probably taken up uh, enough. Um, I could, you know, have you share with us for hours. Um, But I will refer people back to um, glutenfreesociety.org. And I know you have videos and you have um, membership, you know, ability to get lots and lots of information, as well as your practice is towncenterwellness.com. And um, any closing thoughts or comments? Sure. I think that um, anybody who's listening to this interview and is seeking a higher state of health, they just need to think about it intelligently. The old model of pill for your ill 
is is fastly, in my opinion, becoming antiquated, and you should really be reevaluating the relationship you have with your doctors if this is their methodology. None of us know um, what's going to happen with health care, you know, with this new health care bill. Nobody really knows. Nobody nobody has any idea. But what we all speculate is that doctors' offices are going to become twice as busy because you're going to flood them with more patients. And so what that's going to spell is, you know, th- this new plan is going to pay doctors less. So doctors are going to have to see twice as many people to make the same mm-hmm. amount of money, which means mm-hmm. the quality of care is going to vastly deteriorate. And uh, I would just say if if you're in that type of situation, it's really, I would really highly encourage you to go and try to find a good family doctor who doesn't practice that style. And um, even if it's not, you know, with the new health care, they call it an Affordable Health Care Act. And I I say free health care that doesn't work isn't free. The cost Mm -hmm. is to you because if you're taking advice that's wrong or bad or, or misleading or not getting to why you're sick in the first place, it doesn't matter how much it's free. It's not good, and you're not going to improve your health as a result of that. So find a doctor that aligns with that philosophy and really have a good relationship so that you have somebody you can go and see and trust and, and be a partner in your health as opposed to being a dictator in your health. Amen. Well, Dr. Osborne, thank you so much for being a guest on the Get Better Wellness radio show today. There's so much information. I know that it's going to help a lot of people and that this will be, you know, referred out. It it'll be on iTunes as well as Blog Talk Radio. And um it'll just be, you know, a really good resource that I'll be coming back to and referring um, you know, clients and patients to down the road. So thank you so much for being here today. Well, you're very welcome. Thanks for inviting me on. I appreciate the opportunity to share what I know. Okay. Thank you, and have a great day. Thank you. You too. Okay. That was Dr. Osborne with Town Center Wellness in Sugarland, Texas. Visit his website, towncenterwellness.com, and visit my website, getbetterwellness.com, and you can also listen to all of the past podcasts that have been recorded. There's um, approaching 60 now on a variety of subjects that will help you learn the power of nutrition and learn how to be your own health advocate and get off your medication. Um, It does mean you do have to be one of those crazy people who eats real food. So thank you for listening and have a great day.